0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
1: This week on Meet and 3, I'm about to go on maternity leave. This is Katie Mosman-Wadler, and before I leave you in the incredibly capable hands of Team HRN, we're rounding out Season 5 with a deep dive into the food rules, weird cravings, and overall hype about eating while pregnant. There are a lot of safe foods to eat, and we shouldn't be sort of assuming that just because something is raw that it's dangerous. I just found myself feeling like there was an alien piloting my body and brain and uh totally changed the way that i ate so was it the eggplant sure why not i just don't know tune in to this week's episode of meet and three anywhere you listen to podcasts i'll be back soon with our newest and tiniest producer in tow Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So first of all, Happy New Year. Um, I know it's January 14th, but uh, this is our first episode of 2020. And I'm really looking forward to a new season. So first off, to celebrate the new decade, uh, we're going to be talking about the production of one of the most delicious foods imaginable, which is maple syrup. Um, Naturally, my guests today are both calling in from Vermont. First, I have seventh generation farmer or sugar maker Arnold Coombs of Coombs Family Farms. Welcome to the show, Arnold. Thank you, Lisa. And also joining us is Mark Isselhart, a maple specialist at the University of Vermont Extension School. Mark, thanks for being here.
2: Happy to be here. Thanks.
1: All right. So we're going to be talking all about maple. Um, I thought I want to start with uh, a little terminology before we get into this conversation. So this is the farm report. And I think we need to clarify something. Arnold, do you call yourself a farmer? Are maple producers farmers? What what is the right word for this?
3: Normally, we call ourselves sugar makers. Mm-hmm. We are farmers, but sugar maker is the phrase that we all
1: use. But you is, is it interchangeable? Like the company is Coombs Family Farms. So, like, do you, do you use both at different points? Um, from
3: a marketing spec, uh point it's mostly uh, farmer.
1: Mm. Uh,
3: but internally in the industry. It, know, are you a sugar maker? He's a good sugar maker. Whatever it might be. NASA.
1: Okay, so as insiders, we should, we should use sugar maker.
3: <laughs> I, I guess. And, you know, where the syrup is produced, it's a sugar house. Right. In the forest is called a sugar bush.
1: Perfect. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Coombs Family Farm? So what's the history? Um, it sounds like there is a long history. And what does the company look like today?
3: Well, there is a long history. We started as a family making syrup sometime in the early 1840s. We're not sure the exact date. Wow. Um, and we're sugar makers slash farmers for generations. And then in 1925, my grandparents started a maple candy business hmm. where they would take the syrup and turn it into maple candy, and then they started packing syrup and selling it to stores. Okay. Um, that business grew. My father joined it, um, and I joined it and, and 1985. It was kind of on its last legs, and my folks and I sold it. They retired, and I started another one, which is now Coombs Family Farms. And then I merged that with another company called Bascom Maple Farms, Bruce Bascom. And coincidentally, he's the seventh generation of his family in the maple business as well. We've known each other for generations. You know, I'd been over there when I was a kid, Uh, so we knew each other well. And we joined forces because there's a lot of uh, competition coming into the industry that we thought we wouldn't survive independently, but we have strength in numbers, and uh, it has worked out fairly well. We've grown considerably since then.
1: Right. And you source maple from all different sugar makers, is that right?
3: Correct. Yeah. Uh, A few thousand. We have our own farm. We tap about 105,000 trees, uh, but we also buy from many
1: farmers. Right. Um, And you mentioned um, competition, so... Um, You know, I was looking at the stats and Vermont is the top producing state um, and production in the U.S. has grown so much. I was really surprised in the past uh, the past decade. I mean, the the USDA Ag Census uh, showed the gallons of syrup produced in the U.S. almost doubled between 2012 and 2017. Um, I'm curious. So maybe, Mark, if you could weigh in as someone who's been studying maple for a long time, have you been following this growth, and um, do you have a sense of what's fueling it?
2: Sure. Yeah, the, the expansion, I would probably peg to the last 20 years, um, and it, it is dramatic. You know, we're, mm. we're producing, in Vermont anyway, about 2 million gallons of syrup a year. Wow. And about 20, 25 years ago, that number was closer to five hundred to 600,000 gallons. So there's been a, a dramatic change uh, over that period of time. There's not one simple thing that you could say fueled that expansion, um, but there are several key factors. One actually has to do with Canada and how the Canadian maple industry is organized. Hmm. In Canada, the province of Quebec really produces the vast majority of syrup. In fact, Quebec produces over 70% of all the world's maple syrup just in one province. Wow. Wow. And the way they structured their market up there, there's a government-sanctioned um, entity um, that w- works to market all that syrup. So if you're a producer of syrup and you're selling in bulk, basically selling in a barrel, right. you are you have to sell into that one central agency, and then they do the marketing from there. And what they do, they have the ability then, with such a large market share, to um, to s- basically set the world price. Mm. They also have, which you may have run into in your research, is a strategic maple syrup reserve, which, um, you know, depending on <laughs> your sense of humor, you might yeah. you might laugh at, but uh, it is actually a, a critical part of how they market their syrup.
4: Uh-huh. Maple is
2: very, very dependent on, um, on certain uh, temperature fluctuations during the production period.
4: Right. And
2: not all years are ideal, and by having a reserve of syrup, which is not as perishable as other commodities like milk or that sort of thing, mm-hmm. when you have that in reserve, you can release some when, when years aren't as ideal as others, and it moderates the supply. Huh. So the last thing about the Quebec um, uh, organization is that it's really only uh, relates to producers within the province, and they have a quota system so that you... You really aren't paid above your above the quota that you have,
4: okay. so there's a
2: limit on production there. That those limits don't extend beyond the province, and so with a good price uh, for syrup and people marketing uh, syrup globally, people outside the province saw the the benefits of increasing yield uh, production, I should say, mm. and that's where you see uh, Vermont really taking off, and, and other states as well, but Vermont having so much of the 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 remainder of the world's crop, uh, the the growth was, was greater.
1: Right. Well, and it's interesting, you know, you're saying like there's a lot of demand for it around the world for maple. And um, in the past few years, there's been a growing, um, a lot of growing attention in the health and nutrition world um, about sh- how bad sugar is for um, human health. and But maple is not, it sort of like hasn't been looped into that. It seems like it's really positioned as this healthier alternative to white sugar or other sugars is that has that have you seen that um happening like do people see it differently
2: is that a question for me or for arnold
1: um either one M- maybe mark i maybe if you've looked at the research on um, yeah
2: well it's not research that we do here at the university of vermont specifically mm-hmm. but we are aware of work that's being done um there's been quite a bit of work done actually at the University of Rhode Island uh, looking at uh, the nature of the chemical composition of maple syrup, what's in there, and how those how those naturally occurring compounds um, may or may not have health benefits and and there's there's been quite a quite a bit of work done and it's it's a pretty unique product for sure. There are yeah. no additives to maple syrup. It's just a single ingredient, maple sap that's boiled down, and it's produced in a in a sort of a semi wild um, uh, way. You know, you don't have huge uh, cultivated areas um, with synthetic fertilizers. It's it's a, a minimally managed natural forest ecosystem that that produces the sap. Right. So it, it's, it's attractive for that reason as well.
1: Yeah. And it, yeah, it's got, I mean, it, it, there's also, I guess, in nutrition research been increasing um, attention to phytonutrients and like the, you know, antioxidants like polyphenols and, and maple, um, you know, it's sugar, but it has all these like phytonutrients and minerals and other things all um, naturally occurring. So I'm sure that helps um, the appeal for sure. Um, so Arnold, um, you know, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, like, what maple production looks like um, in Vermont at a commercial scale right now. Because, you know, I, when I picture maple syrup, I picture, like, my neighbor growing up would, like, bring his buckets and tap his trees in our yard. And, um, you know, I don't think that's really what it looks like as much anymore. Can you talk a little bit about, like, what, uh, what most um, producers, like, the systems they're using and what it looks like?
3: Sure. The vast majority of producers now are using a tubing system. Uh, they no longer use buckets.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, it just really reduces the labor. Uh, it makes it much more convenient for collection. It allows trees that you would never have tapped with buckets to be tapped because they're up on a hillside or off in the distance. Um, it also does much less damage to the forest because you don't need roads to get through there to gather the sap mm-hmm. from buckets. And so most people are using tubing systems. Um, you know, one man can probably handle 10,000 taps on tubing, whereas with buckets, maybe it's 500 taps.
4: Right.
3: So it's much more efficient. Um, we now use a smaller diameter spout, which is healthier, where the tree less, does less damage uh, than you would with a, a spout that a bucket would require. And so there's a lot of modern things uh, going in that direction. Farmers will use a vacuum system, so we'll literally suck the sap down the pipeline, make sure we get it... Uh, fresh, Um, and then it's boiled in a very efficient evaporator. Um, Some still use wood, Um, probably more use oil and um, steam to to heat the syrup, boil the sap into syrup, Mm. so much more efficient in that sense. There's been a lot of um, efficiencies developed over the last 25 years, Mm. much at uh, the Procter Maple Research Center, where uh, Mark is, uh, and also by industry in itself. Right. Uh, so that's why you have seen the, the numbers grow as well.
1: Right. Yeah, that, ma- that makes a lot of sense. How, how big is a typical, like, maple farm in Vermont? Uh, is there a big range in terms of, like, small to larger scale?
3: There's a lot of small ones. Okay. So in the 500 to 5,000 tap range, there's a lot, hundreds and hundreds of them, um, uh, well over 1,000 or maybe even two. Maybe Mark knows better than I do. And then there's the larger commercial ones of 20,000 taps and up, where at 20,000, you can probably make a living on your own. Uh, You don't have to, you know, necessarily have other work. Um, And if you get up to more, then you can support your family, and and that is what you do. You are focused on maple full-time. And it's not just a seasonal thing, but, uh, you know, when you're in it as a business, you're working in the woods year-round for the most part.
1: Right. Well... Oh, sorry, go ahead,
2: Mark. Well, I was just going to say that one of the neat things about the maple industry is that there, the, the there isn't a huge barrier barrier to entry. You know, what mm. matters is the quality of the product you make. So um, if you're doing everything right and you're putting it in the bottle and you're selling it in the marketplace, either at a farmer's market or a store down the road, um, you know, you you can be part of the industry as well. Um, it, it just, everyone has to play by the same rules as far as quality. So making sure the density is right, the flavor is right. And, um, and it, everyone contributes to, to, to what the, what the industry is. So mm. it's pretty nice that way.
1: Yeah. And Arnold, you brought up that, um, you know, so, some um, maple producers are just doing maple, right. And then some farmers do it as part of, um, You know another operation. Like I I read an article about maple as a crop for farmers, um, for dairy farmers potentially. Um, Is is that um, typical? And is there a big opportunity there? You know, I'm thinking about. It's obviously harder than ever right now for small farms, especially small dairy farms, um, to make money and to survive. Um, Are a lot of farmers using maple as a, a means to to add income to their operations?
3: A lot of them are. It's not necessarily new. It's been going on uh, for generations. Mm. It's a time of year when there's not a lot of other farm work to be done. Right. You know, the fields are covered with snow. Um, If you can get out there and gather sap and boil it down, you're making income in a downtime of the year, essentially. So that's always been going on. Um, As the profitability of maple has gone up over the last 20 years, we're seeing. Maybe more farmers switching to a bigger emphasis on the maple production mm. uh, and growing that side of it. Some farmers getting out of dairy completely uh, and focusing uh, specifically on maple. We did that ourselves. Uh, Bascoms used to have uh, just about a 300-head dairy farm, and I'll uh, be 15 years ago sold a herd and just focused all on maple. Hmm. We lease out the farm now. We still own it. We, we just leased out someone else who's doing it. Herd management, but uh, you know, you got to be focused on dairy to really make any money. And and our business was maple at the time, so we decided to move on.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, it it seems like uh, diversification can can really help when it when it comes to small farms. And um, absolutely, I I guess the the big thing is you you need access to maple trees, right? Like, I guess, but in Vermont, a lot of farmers probably do have like them on their property somewhere right
3: a lot of farmers do or you can lease your neighbor's trees Uh, so uh, it's very easy to work out an agreement where say a farm uh, a landowner has a thousand or two thousand taps uh, nearby and you can go in and for a certain amount per tap you can lease those trees and collect the sap and boil in the syrup that's how a lot of farmers expand is by leasing neighboring trees
1: got it.
2: The, the vast majority of that increase in production that we've seen mm-hmm. over the last 20 years have really come from the conversion of stands that were managed for long-term timber management and, and, and now converted to what we call sugar bush, which is the term for stands that are managed for sap production. So there's been areas, typically a little more upper, um, not, I wouldn't say high elevation, but upper elevation from, from where most dairy farms are. Um, those, those stands were owned and managed for timber production, and harvesting happened periodically. Um, and, and as maple has come on as, as a uh, more stable income, because uh, you get an annual income either from producing it yourself or from the rental uh, lease rates that Arnold was talking about, it's become attractive for, for more landowners.
1: Mm. Well, and that that brings up another point I want to talk about, which is, um, you know, the impact on forests. Um, But we have to take a quick break. So let's do that. And when we come back, we'll talk more about um, the relationship between maple and environmental impacts. Um, We'll be right back.
0: This episode is presented by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Forever Cheese sources a curated collection of unique cheeses and specialty foods from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. They have pioneered numerous important products that are now integral to today's market, including many under their brand Matika. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
1: All right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Lisa Held, and I'm here with Arnold Coombs and Mark Isselhart, and we are talking about maple syrup production. So we left off with this um, question about um, maple and environmental impact. And um, Mark, you mentioned, um, you know, forests that were maybe before being used for timber. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about is there evidence that supports a correlation between maple production and forest conservation? Well,
2: it's a wide open topic, lots, <laughs> lots of things to cover. Okay. Um, maybe I'll hit on a few of the high points as okay. I see it. Um, so sugaring is has been done for a long, long time. There's a long history of it, and as Arnold said, you know most most producers early on were using um, buckets or some some approximation of a bucket to collect the sap and making the you have to make a wound in the stem each mm-hmm. time each year so you are doing a little bit of damage to the individual tree uh, when you make that that hole okay as technology has increased we've actually found that we can produce the same or even more sap with smaller holes so it a correspondingly smaller wound um, with the advent of modern vacuum tubing, we can actually extract more sap. So there's sort of this back and forth about positives and potential negatives. Um, and one interesting thing is that you know we're talking about a, a, a hardy perennial plant, the sugar maple, mm-hmm. and in some cases red maple. People are tapping that are really well adapted to the climate. So they they, they handle. It's not just tapping, there's other stresses in the environment, and sugar maple tends to be pretty good at withstanding uh, some of those injuries. But modern sugaring is is relatively new, and so we're curious about what impact um, it might be and how that's different from historical collection practices. Mm. We're about six years into a research project here at the University of Vermont looking at that and comparing modern sugaring with more traditional levels of of sap extraction as well as um, no tapping you know trees in the same in the same stand and after six years we're not seeing a difference but we tap trees for more than six years so we'll continue that study for into the future and see if differences exist um are they significant and you know what can be done um, uh, as a result the, the the two things impacting sustainability uh, from the tree's perspective, would be the wound, so we're drilling hole into that that tissue, right, And the tree responds to the wound by walling off that that hole uh, just like it would if there was a woodpecker hole or if it was a branch that was broken off. the tree is very well programmed to respond to those injuries. The other one is a little bit different, and that and that's how much sugar we're taking out and and since we are able to take maybe twice as much as we have in the past, um, does that does that make a difference? Mm. All the complexity goes along with it. Um, not the least of which is how big the tree is. So bigger trees store a tremendous amount, and we really can only take so much out of each individual tap hole. So um, the issue of is sustainability still needs to be looked at uh, over a longer period. But it appears, at least in the short term, that that modern methods are not are not any any less sustainable than historical um, uh, processes. Right. Then you have the broader sort of landscape-wide questions of okay, um, what are the issues of managing for a few species rather than a diverse suite of species? And most sugar makers um, who are certified organic or almost all. Have to retain some non-maple species in their in their forests uh, as a as basically a, a, a check against the issues related to a monoculture, where if a pest were to come through, you could you could have a a pretty devastating event, uh, defoliation or or something like that. So there's there's small individual tree issues, and then there's broad sort of landscape type issues re- involving with 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 sugaring.
1: Right. But and I mean, overall, um, are there, you know, I, I'm also just thinking about the fact that so so there's all these issues, potential issues with like a little bit of damage to the trees um, and we're not sure long term what what that means. Um, and then I'm also just thinking about like, you know, forests are hold so much carbon and like are are there is there evidence that shows that these forests would potentially have been cleared for other you know, for other purposes, and they're being—they're not being cleared and actually cut down because there's money to be made tapping them for maple.
2: Yeah, I mean, forest management in the Northeast, uh, at least in in hardwood stands, there isn't as much of a tradition of, like, heavy, heavy cutting. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit, but for the most part, it's more periodic. Yeah. Uh, cutting. That being said, you're still probably going to be retaining more carbon, sequestering more carbon in a maturing well stocked forest than you would with one that was you know had been cut, so right. uh, no there's there's all sorts of issues positive issues with with keeping a mature forest uh, intact from flood mitigation downstream water quality uh, carbon sequestration, like you said, so yeah. there's a lot of positives about keeping keeping those mature forests intact
1: right well and and you also mentioned um the organic Um, point that that uh, that on organic maple farms they have to um, retain more biodiversity and I was going to ask Arnold I was going to ask you about that because Coombs Family Farms is organic and um, I was kind of like thinking what does that mean when it comes to maple syrup you know like I know with production of vegetables you can't use certain pesticides um, fertilizers it Are there, in maple production, if it's not organic, are there a lot of um, chemical pesticides and fertilizers? Like, what's different about the way you do things other than the um, retaining biodiversity?
3: It's not all that much different. Okay. Um, You know, the biodiversity component is big. Right. Uh, So we have to have a written forest management plan showing that we are practicing sustainable forestry. Um, That's one of the big things. Okay. And then it's how we are treating the trees. Are we overtapping them? you know, taking too much sap, doing too much damage. Mm. So they will check that out. Um, How are we cleaning uh, our equipment and such? Are we doing that in a proper way? Sometimes during the boiling process, a sugar maker will use a defoamer to keep the foam down. When syrup or sap hits, say, 214, 215 degrees, it wants to boil like crazy, kind of like uh, when you have pasta going. And and so a farmer will use a defoamer to keep it down and just, There's organic deformers, and so you make sure you're using an organic deformer for that. And then how do you filter it and store it? Mm. Um, So there's no huge home-run thing that we have to change, but it's documenting you doing the right thing um, and just a few minor changes beyond that.
1: Right. Okay. Um, And then, so, in terms of climate, um, and kind of in the other direction... um, Mark, you said earlier that, that maple harvesting is very sensitive to, to temperature fluctuations. Um, you know, I'm curious, I guess both of you could answer this question, you know, in terms of research, Mark, on your end, and then Arnold, like if you're seeing this with, with the sugar makers you work with and on, on your farm, um, have, have changes in weather patterns already started affecting maple production?
2: Yep, we are definitely seeing the season start earlier
1: mm.
2: and and end earlier, uh, and and the whole season appears to contract a little bit. Um, that being said, we're seeing, as you saw with, with your research into the statistics, that production is increasing and, and yield of syrup per tap is also increasing, mm-hmm. and that has a lot to do with technology. But um, we are seeing the season start earlier than before, it's also important to remember that some of that data on when people first tap, it could have more to do with uh, the scale of their operation and when they need to start Mm. in order to be ready for when the season is really kicking in. So, you know, we've already had people produce syrup here in Vermont um, in the second, you know, in the first week in, in January. That doesn't mean that the season has really begun. It just means that really large operations have to start tapping early. And if you get any amount of good weather for sugaring, you're going to collect some sap and you need to boil it. So um, broadly speaking, it, it appears that, that uh, the season starts earlier. And if people hold to their traditional tapping dates, which tend to be you know later in February or early March, um, there is the possibility that they're going to miss out on some on some of the, the sap flow. Um, and it, it's also important to note that the season might be six weeks long, seven weeks long, maybe a little shorter some years. That doesn't mean that there's an even amount of sap flow over that whole period. Okay. The, the bulk of the crop is made up on a relatively small number of discrete days or events that we call sap runs. And that's when the weather cooperates, the tubing system is running and everything is working. You you can make a huge amount of sap in a relatively short period of time, so it's a little hard to disentangle the okay. The season is starting earlier, and maybe its overall duration is a little less. And how to reason that with oh, our yields are actually getting higher. Um, there there's some complexity there for sure.
1: Yeah yeah, Arnold. What does it look like um, on your end? Just like observationally, like do, does it feel like the season has been changing?
3: Well, it mm. definitely feels like it's earlier. Um, you know, the old rule of thumb when I was a kid is you tap around town meeting day, the first Tuesday in March. Mm. And uh, I don't know of anyone who waits that long now. You would be missing a good portion of your crop. because It's warmer before then. Mm. Uh, you know, you got to have the freezing nights and warm days. And it used to be you didn't get too many of them before March, and now you do. Yeah. I mean, right now we're getting them, so it's, it's kind of crazy.
1: Yeah. And is that, I mean, does that affect you, does that affect, has it affected your production?
3: Well, as Mark said, farmers are, are getting more out of the forest now than they were before. Um, and that's mostly to do with technology and just being more efficient and mm-hmm. being ready for those early runs that years ago we never were. Uh, we've started tapping our trees, and it'll take us a month to get them all tapped. Um, and we're not tapping them now to get the sap necessarily. You know, next week or anything, we just want to be ready in February when it, in Syria it's warming up at the normal time. And so uh, if it does run, we'll collect it and boil it and do what we do. But um, everyone seems to be ready earlier now than they ever were. Mm. You just have to be.
2: There's, there's a few other things to be concerned about. Uh, one would be uh, abnormally warm temperatures happening during the season, mm. you know, typically there's sort of this slow progression of warmth and to the point where you stop having freezing nights, and that's essentially when the season ends. In 2012, we had a, a pretty odd event where there was about four or five days in the 70s in March, which is quite warm for for Vermont. Right. And what that did is it, it changed the chemistry of the sap, it impacted the... Um, the, the ability of the tap hole to produce sap, and, this, and from then on, beyond that point, the, the syrup quality went down and, and total yield went down. Now we haven't seen a repeat of that since 2012, but that's definitely a concern um, because of how dramatic uh, that event was. Now the last two years, the season has actually been delayed a little bit because of too cold weather. So. Mm. You know uh, the high temperatures of two thousand and twelve might have gotten a lot of attention within the maple industry um, getting it having it be too cold can also be can also be a concern right
4: um,
2: The other big issue related to climate I want to make sure we talk about is that um, the the concept of species migration is is gets a lot of attention um, not just in maple but the idea that as the climate warms you 're going to see um, the traditional sort of assemblage of species that we see now right. getting kind of reshuffled as different species are better or more com- more competitive. Um, that's definitely a concern to sugar makers, and and people are are certainly looking at it. And you'll see you'll see maps or projections for for what the climate might be in the Northeast it might be more comparable to mid-Atlantic states in the future. Mm. One thing that. I- uh, it's important to keep in mind is that sugar makers are are very uh, active as far as managing for a few species in their sugar bush, and and so it, I think you have to have a seed source for some of these more uh, southerly species to to show up and establish themselves. And most sugar makers I know are are pretty pretty uh, focused on promoting red and sugar maple growth at the expense of others. And so um, I think think those projections are something to take note of, but I, I know that sugar makers will be paying attention to what the species mix are in their sugar bush and kind of managing accordingly.
1: Hmm. Um, another thing that I, I wanted to ask you about um, before we wrap up is I, um, in my research for this episode, um, I, I stumbled on this article about what's called the plantation method, um, where, you know, it, it was fascinating to me because maple feels like one of these few foods that we're still kind of getting from the wild, even if we're, it's kind of a farm, but it's still from the forest, you know, tapping trees. Um, And, you know, this new method that's being proposed would essentially allow farmers to plant maples as row crops and get sap from them. Or is this something you all are looking at and thinking about? And is, do you think that this will catch on?
2: Well, that research was done here at the university of Vermont. Uh, It was initiated by, Dr. Abby Vandenberg and Dr. Tim Perkins mm. and it was a sort of a natural progression of, of the scientific method of trying to understand where where the sap was coming from and were we taking sap from different parts of the tree with vacuum compared to the old days with buckets mm. and what they came up with was this concept that perhaps the above ground parts, which in a wild tree or semi wild tree are what are really driving the sap flow mechanism, the above ground parts that freeze and draw moisture up into the tree. And then when it thaws, that's the sap you're collecting on each day, if you're using just a bucket. But with vacuum, you know, it it was sort of thought, well, perhaps the above ground parts aren't as critical as as maybe they would be with with bucket collection. Mm. And so we had some plantations here. and We experimented with a lot of different types of fittings and, and, and techniques. And the concept certainly works. You can you can cut the top off a, a sapling, and, and assuming you get a good vacuum seal, you can suck sap out of it. Hmm. What is interesting is the tree doesn't die. Um, it's it's a little bit like if a tree had been subjected to a severe ice storm where a lot of the branches broke off. Those uh, many trees in ice storms don't die, even though it is very dramatic to see. Huh. You have what are called dormant buds that are below the bark and. They're kept dormant by the above ground, you know, the, the branches. They produce chemicals to keep those buds dormant. When that top is removed, those dormant buds are free to grow, and, and they will as part of the tree's strategy to stay alive. Mm. So what will happen is you'll collect sap from the sapling for a little bit for one season, and then the tree will reflush new leaves, and you can you can keep going as long as you have tissue to, to cut into. Hmm. I can't really say for sure if it's going to take off as an alternative to the traditional sugar bush. Right. I will say that um, people are certainly interested in it and have planted plantations and they're becoming ready for tapping. You need really maybe something around two, two and a half inches in diameter to to have it be usable. Because you don't get very much sap out of each individual sapling. Mm. It's only when you plant it up high density per acre that you would achieve yields that equal or exceed what we see in a normal uh, conventional sugar bush. Right. I'd say it has potential. Um, It's provocative, that's for sure. It gets gets people's attention. Um, I don't necessarily know if it is the future or not because there's still a lot of work involved in cutting those tops and attaching those fittings and we used to cut Christmas trees out of the woods and not go to a plantation to buy them too. Right. But that, that's changed. So,
1: yeah. Arnold, what do you think of it? I'm so curious if it's, if there is like, you know, uh, passionate responses among sugar makers of, you know, this is sort of a new agey way to do it. And, you know, we should stick to the sugar bush or if it's like exciting cause it could be more productive. How do you feel about it?
3: I think we're all kind of like, uh, I don't know, probably turning up our nose at first. Yeah. <laughs> what are they talking about? Um, but there may be situations where this works. Um, you know, there's an invasive species, uh, Asian longhorn beetle, that does a lot of damage to maple trees. And if that were to get into someone's forest, those trees in that forest would all have to be cut down and, and mm. chipped. So then the farm would be essentially out of business. But what if they could have, you know, they had fields that they could replant in a plantation format. Mm. they would be back in business sooner. It would still take many years, but they could still be a, a productive farmer um, without waiting the 30 to 40 years for their trees to grow back. Right. So it, there's situations where that may be quite productive for a farmer.
1: Right. Maybe there's room, room for both methods, Yes. potentially. Um, great. Well, Arnold, Mark, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week.
4: This program is powered by Simplecast.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter.